everybody. I'm Michael Davis. Welcome to Bone to Pick. And we are coming to you today from the Performing Arts Center here at Rutgers University in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And I am absolutely honored and thrilled to uh, be able to spend some time today with, in my estimation, one of the greatest trombone players of all time, also one of the most influential trombone players of the last 20 to 30 years, the great Conrad Herwig. Conrad has released over 23, well, actually 23 CDs now as a solo artist. He has garnered uh, three Grammy nominations from those releases. He has recorded as a featured sideman on over 200 CDs, most notably with Miles Davis, Joe Henderson, Eddie Palmieri, Joe Lovano, Michelle Camilo, Tom Harrell, just to name a few. Uh, he is the chair of the Jazz Studies program here at the uh, Mason Gross School of the Arts at Rutgers University. And uh, I can honestly say, I, the first time I heard Conrad, which is probably now about 32, 33 years ago, uh, it put the fear of God in me. I'd never heard the trombone played like that, both from a technical standpoint and a harmonic standpoint. He was playing things that I couldn't believe were coming out of a trombone. And, and I can honestly say I still feel that way now. Every time I hear him, it's just uh, incredibly motivational and inspiring. So... Conrad, I want to thank so much for taking time out of your super busy schedule. Well, great right to see you, Mike. Yeah, always great to great see to you. Great to be here. Um, let's jump right in and talk about, uh, we were talking about it a little bit before the interview here. Uh, you're growing up, and I know you moved around, but you ended up spending quite a bit of time in Hawaii growing up and uh, graduating from the Punahou School, which has uh, some very famous alumni, including President Obama, as well as my own mom so, uh, and yourself. So, but anyway, maybe you could talk about how you got to the trombone, what those years were like in uh, Honolulu. Well, you know, the, how I started playing trombone is really simple. I, uh, I was eight years old. I was in fourth grade, and we, we were living in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. My father is a retired colonel in the Army, so I'm an Army brat. And we were living in Fort Leavenworth, and I went to, they had band day, like the music man drives up in a truck. And so he, just one by one we went through, and he, he said, hey, kid, put your arm out. And I put my arm out, and he goes, trombone. <laughs> so then I went home with the trombone. And uh, being that my father was in the military, um, he did some inquiring. And I started taking some lessons with military band trombonists. Um, and I did, you know, played a little bit, played. We, we moved to Maryland, Edgewood Arsenal, and then moved to Hawaii. And uh, so I started going to Punahou School, which had a really great band program. You know, I, I had two great band directors in in my time at Punahou, and uh, they also had a music conservatory, you know, wind ensemble orchestra, jazz band, and uh, so that was great. And I was sort of gravitated to taking lessons with um, a trombonist who had, had been in the Air Force, and that was Les Benedict. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, it, you know, the whole thing about being in school in those days, you know, a lot of schools are like this. I mean, unfortunately, with budget cuts, it changes up, but. You know, we'd have jazz band at 7 a.m., wind ensemble, take some classes, orchestra, and then two or three hours of marching band. And so you're playing your horn five, six hours a day. Mm -hmm. um, and then I was really blessed taking lessons with Les. And then Ira Nepis was also in, in town. So I would either take a lesson with Les or Ira. And um, the godfather of trombone in Hawaii was Trummy Young. Because Trummy had um, moved, he had married a Hawaiian girl, moved to Honolulu, and was playing at the Hanahana Room in uh, in Honolulu at the White Sheraton Waikiki, which was a cool restaurant. It had a revolving restaurant, you know, and so 
Trummy's band was, you know, Trummy's quintet was the featured band six nights a week. Um, I remember on probably my 13th birthday, my mom and dad said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to go hear Trummy play. And so we went to hear Trummy. And, uh, you know, I remember we went to the restaurant, we sat down at the table and I told my mom, I need to go to the restroom. So when I went to the restroom, Trummy was in the restroom and he was there in his suspenders and he had his dentures out on the sink and he was trying to, you know, get his choppers in, you know. And so I was just in awe because it was like, man, it's, it's Trummy. So I didn't say anything. I'm just watching. And he kind of had a sixth sense and he turned and he, he looks up and he goes, hey, kid, what's going on? <laughs> and I said, oh, it's, it's my, you know, it's my birthday. I'm Les's student. He goes, oh, yeah, kid. He goes, I'll put a double layer of denture cream in and play, you know, high B flat for you on the next set. So, of course, I, you know, ran out to the table and I told my, my parents, I was like, yeah, Trummy said he's going to play a double B flat next set, you know, and he came out and he goes, well, you know, there's a young man, he's celebrating his birthday, and this is a song we're dedicating to him, and, you know, he just was ripping, you know. <laughs> That's so great. So, yeah, so, <clears throat> you know, and at that moment, I, you know, was a life-changing event that I decided the only thing I ever wanted to do was be a jazz trombone player. I mean, it just, you know, some kids want to be a fireman or a policeman. I was just, you know, Trummy was my idol. And, and really, you know, Les and, and Ira were my heroes. And there was this an incredible level of brass playing. You know, we were talking about it um, with the trumpet scene in Hawaii at that time. And we're talking about the early 70s with, with Gary Grant and Jerry Hay, Johnny Madrid. And then Ollie Mitchell moved to Hawaii and was living on his catamaran in Honolulu Harbor. And uh, Ollie had a big band that I was able to sub in on occasions, you know, with, with Les and Ira and that, you know, all the guys from Sea Wind. So people don't really think about it, but jazz was a, was a big deal. Like Hawaii was a hotspot for jazz in those days. And I think you've probably spoken before with Gary and, and Jerry, you've interviewed them. And uh, I guess it was because, you know, part, two things that happened. One was the Vietnam War, so some guys were getting deferments to go to the University of Hawaii and then the other thing was the show scene, the Don Ho show, and you know Elvis. I remember all those guys were like Elvis live from Hawaii in the early '70s sure, and stuff. Yeah. So for me, I was blessed to to grow up and be around those guys and study and and hear Trummy so much. You know, I I remember thinking I didn't know at that time when I was 13. I thought all jazz quintets were led by trombone players because it was the only <laughs> one I'd ever seen in my life. So I, I was figured, okay, if you want to be a jazz musician, you have to be a trombone player. And, you know, then I found out later it was the exception to the rule. Yeah. But, but anyway, it was a cool, cool time growing up. That's amazing. Great story. God, that's fantastic. Um, well, following that, I think you, you went immediately to, to North Texas, I believe. And, and I know what an, an amazing program that was and still is. Um, back then it was North Texas State University. I guess now it's North Texas University. But uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about your time there. And, of course, the 1 o'clock band. I think a lot of people, I mean, you were known, beginning to be known already, but that kind of brought you to uh, a lot of people's attention. Well, that was another, um, like, confluence of so many great musicians at um, North Texas. And it was sort of a foregone conclusion because I remember um, when I was a senior in high school and being 
and it was, Gary Grant won't remember this, but it was probably a conversation with Les and I and Gary, and Gary's like, no, go to, you gotta go to North Texas. Mm -hmm. So it was just, that was where I knew I went, wanted to go. And I was just fortunate to be um, in, in that climate with all those great musicians that were there. I mean, uh, Bob Belden and Jim, Jim Powell, Jim Snydero, Tim Reese, uh, you know, Dan Fernero is mm -hmm. one of my sure. best friends growing up. I mean, they're in, in college. All these great um, players, and it was still the time of Leon Breeden mm -hmm. as our director. And I felt, you know, it was just, it, it was really, you know, the, the school part of it was great, you know, the rigor and, and you know, having the rehearsals and everything. But just the, having that community of musicians, and they're people that to this day are still great friends of mine, Jim Snydero, mm -hmm. especially. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we used to just go to the practice rooms and shed, and you know, it was like the formative time. Um, and, and it was also great because we had visiting artists come in. Dallas was really a cool place. Um, I was able to go and sit in with Red Garland, um, my really good friend Charlie Young, who's the director of jazz studies at Howard University now. He'd come and pick me up in his VW, and I remember uh, he said, we're gonna go sit in with Red Garland. And I'm like, I said, well, why don't you go sit in with Red Garland, and I'll just hang out. And he's like, no, we're gonna go sit in. And uh, I remember we went in there, and Red called a tune I didn't know, and I just stood there with my horn, you know, because the place was packed, you know. And then the guy who was a bouncer who looked like Mr. T or something came up to me and says, hey, kid, can you play that horn? And I'm like, yes, sir. And so blue, you know, Red goes like, uh, well, kid, can you play blues? And I said, yeah, Sunny Moon for two and B flat. You know, I was playing for my life. You know, <laughs> you know. And then we finished, and you know, the audience dug it and everything. And uh, the bouncer came up to me. He goes, you're lucky you can play that horn because I was going to shove it somewhere that you didn't want to know. <laughs> and and I was like, you know, but but those were great moments, you know. And and that kind of um, atmosphere. I remember Clark came and sat in with Red Garland. And I, I met Clark Terry. It was probably the first time I ever met Clark Terry. And, uh, you know, he probably came and did a clinic at North Texas. And uh, that was how I ended up coming to New York was with Clark, you know, Clark, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, starting his own, his new big band. And I think the thing that also all of us aspired to play in big bands, I know we're from the same generation, sure. that we, you know, I really had my hopes, and I've talked to John Fetchuk about this, you know, in the past. I really wanted, you know, dreamed about playing in Woody Herman's band, because um, Bob Belden and Jim Powell were friends of mine, and, um, but going out with Clark Terry, you know, and, you know, and then there was guy, were guys going out with Kenton's band, and, and all in Maynard, and there was a huge, um, because then that was the way also that the guys from North Texas and Berkeley and Eastman, then we all met each other, in Buddy's band and mm -hmm. everywhere else. And then the beauty of that was when you went to New York, you already had a gig. So, you know, you could go sit in or meet people and you, they'd say, well, what are you doing? You'd say, well, I'm on Buddy's band, but we have three weeks off or something. I'm on Clark Terry's band. And it was a great climate for jazz. I think it was, you know, not to say it was the golden age, but it was a great time, Yeah, you know, absolutely. for us. Yeah, I mean, certainly North Texas at that time, as you mentioned, there's so many incredible musicians and being around that at such a great point you just come up together and you inspire each other and uh, and then that ends up being such a great feeder system for the big bands back then 
Let me just talk uh, or let's ask you, um, you know, I think you mentioned Clark Terry and that was kind of your first big launch in your professional career. Uh, I was just going to throw out maybe three big bands that I associate with the, the early part of your career, but Clark, of course, and then Buddy Rich's band, um, and then I, I think we played together, but you were an integral part of Toshiko Akiyoshi's band for a long time, but, hmm. but it, that seemed to all be in that kind of early period of your career. Maybe you could talk about those three bands uh, and those experiences. Well, I mean, look, Clark Terry, to me, is the king of jazz. Um, I, you know... I admire him so much. He's such a giving and loving person. I consider him to be like an uncle to me. Um, he, he's opened doors and helped me in, um, you know, getting workshop opportunities and, and gig opportunities. And, um, you know, he wrote quotes on liner notes for my albums and stuff. And it was just like, and so giving. And, um, you know, I really consider him to be one of the greatest human beings I've ever met in my life. Just to tell you a story, you know, Clark obviously is in Arkansas now, and, you know, we love him very much. I mean, uh, and I'm hoping, you know, we want him around for another decade, and however long. I mean, Clark's the, also just, you know, like an energizer bunny, you know, keeps on ticking. Take a lick and keep on ticking. That's Clark Terry. But we were, this was a few years ago. And uh, probably his last gigs, we might have been at Birdland or the Blue Note. And everybody and their brother was coming to sit in. Uh, like Randy Brecker came and sat in. And Randy was playing great, as we know. Randy's playing better now than he, you know, in his entire career. And uh, so I told Randy, I said, man, that was great. And he goes, yeah, but Clark cut, cut me in five notes or less. <laughs> and... So I went backstage between shows, and Clark was sitting there, and he was having his dinner, you know, and he, he calls me Rads. So he goes, Rads. He goes, all the young bloods are, you know, coming after me. And I said, well, Clark, you don't have anything to worry about because they're just trying to figure out who's number two. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, yeah, you know, he's cool. And, and so, he, I mean, there is a guy who just absolutely is giving and loving. So now Buddy, on the other hand, was a different kind of personality, as you know. Sure. But, but Buddy was also um, the kind of musician who gave people opportunities. He, you know, uh, he, he wouldn't qualify as your favorite uncle, you know, perhaps. <laughs> well said, yeah. <laughs> you know, and we'll be nice here. Yeah. You know, but, but Buddy, I, I always thought when you play with Buddy, you were playing against Buddy. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. I sat next to Buddy in the hot seat. You sat in the hot yeah, seat, too. Yeah, yeah. Nobody really knows if you didn't, unless you played second trombone in that band, you know, having to pull out the cymbals and stuff and constant battles with Buddy. But, but you know, he, you know, when you, if you would stand up to him and, you know, and do it, it was, it was a victory, you know, it was, a, and it was, he, he may, I mean, he was a great musician. I mean, definitely a great drummer. He just had his way of doing things. Um, and one thing I would say about Buddy, that Buddy was the master of negative energy. And yet one thing is negative energy is energy. Mm-hmm. Like when we would yeah, be yeah. on the road, and we've shared these times, you'd be on the road 60 nights, 70 nights in a row, maybe one day off. Or we'd look forward to the hit and runs because we wouldn't have to pay for our hotel. You know, you do two or three hit and runs, you're like, man, I'm saving money <laughs> sleeping on the bus. But then, you know, he would use the negative energy to keep pushing the band. The only problem is then 
there's the law of diminishing returns where sometimes, yeah. you know. Yeah, no doubt. But those, you know, people you're talking about, like, or we're talking about, uh, Clark and Buddy, that goes back to the great leaders. I mean, obviously, Buddy is in the tradition of the Tommy Dorsey. I'm mm -hmm. sure what Buddy did mirrored Tommy Dorsey. And, yeah. I mean, we both played with Frank Sinatra, and I think Frank took the better parts of what he learned from Dorsey, and maybe the total, I never, I mean, Frank could get kind of mad and angry too, but I, you know, I th I'm not saying, well, yeah, I'll say Frank was a classier guy than Buddy, mm -hmm. in a way, mm -hmm. but Buddy had class, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of class. <laughs> K-L-A-Z <laughs> yeah. class. <laughs> no, but you know, and, and I'm sure, you, you know, Clark learned from Count Basie and Duke Ellington and had that kind of um, expertise, you know, and there was that, that generational leadership. And then, you know, Toshiko, you know, was amazingly uh, nurturing to me, nice to me, you know, I played in her band for 11 years. Um, you know, I think her genius is also the, the, the fusion of her Japanese culture. You know, some of the music that I admire the most that she's written are like, are like Sumie and those pieces where she utilizes the Japanese you know, palette, the harmonic palette, and the the um, Suzumi drummers from the no play, you know, that utilizing that um, heritage. And uh, and Toshiko, see, that there was still the lineage. And, you know, we might consider ourselves younger dinosaurs, you and I. You know, we're young dinosaurs, but, but it was the age of the dinosaurs in a way. And, you know, then the big bands have kind of fallen off, you know, in that way. It was so expensive to carry 15 guys on the road. But it was, it was a great time. Mm -hmm. I have to say one thing, just taking a, a slight step back about Buddy. Um, I remember the hi-hat thing puts a fear God in me, too. Like, I remember my first night at Ronnie Scott's, and I couldn't get the thing off the, out of the drum platform. And then I finally get the, the uh, hi-hat up, and then I get it on top of his Italian leather boot, and I scrape it across the top, and he's got this big mark, and I'm like, I made it through the gig, but I'm going to get fired because I can't move the hi-hat. I walk out on the bus, and he's just like, kid, what's wrong with you? And I was just like, I'm really sorry, buddy. I didn't know. I was like sweating. He's like, ah, get out of here. That was it. But uh, anyway, the real, the real thing I wanted to bring up was I think you too, like you're so strong musically, and the way you play, you bring so much intensity and energy. You know, buddy, I know I heard him say amazing things about you and considered you one of the best trombone players that ever played on the band. But I know in testament to that, when I got on the band, all of a sudden, that, that what was a tenor solo on Sammy Nestico's up-tempo burner wind machine it was all of a sudden a trombone solo. And I remember asking Dave Panicki, I'm like, what do you mean i got to play a wind machine? He's like, well, Conrad played on it, and Buddy liked it, so it's a trombone <laughs> solo now. But Conrad's gone, by the way, so <laughs> we well, had to keep it going. But, I mean, you were that, you know, every musical stop you've made in your career, you're the right guy. But in that particular instance, you had that way to, you know, kind of... Well, yeah, you got to put the pedal, you know... To play with Buddy Richard was putting pedal to the metal. Um, and it may have meant making artistic choices that you wouldn't choose. You know, you're not going to use a lot of space and, you know, artistic freedom with Buddy. It was basically you were, yeah. had, to, had to pound it. You had to hammer, you know. And, uh, but I think, for example, you know, people have talked to me, oh, how could you have played with Buddy Rich? One of the things in life is that if you've, you know, I called it jazz boot camp. It's the way I thought of it. With Buddy as the drill sergeant. 
well, you know, my father's military. And one of the things about boot camp is you're more afraid of your own sergeant than you are of the enemy. So you're always going to march forward. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it was the same with us. We, you know, we weren't, I would say, that whole class of, of musicians. And I remember there was great guys in the band when I was there. Um, Rick Stepton and Lim Viviano and, um, you know, Walt Weiskopf and, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, Andy and Steve, you know, Andy Fusco. And, sure. And, and the thing was, we were fearless. Like, we were kind of a rough bunch of guys. I mean, we were fearless. Like, I mean, we weren't afraid of an audience or afraid of music, but he gave you and gave us that confidence yeah. that I think helps us in our career. I mean, it, it could also hurt you in some way, too, when you think of, you know, the psychological aspects. But, but I think, you know, if, I w have felt since then, and I, we've all been in tough musical situations, like business, you know, music business, um, where having worked with Buddy gives you the confidence to say, well, like, you know, I've, I've been with, like, you know, the king of the, you know, <laughs> of the tough guys. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think I can handle this situation. Yeah, that's a great point. Let's jump ahead to the, the late 80s now, and this is when I sort of saw, saw your jazz career really start to take hold, and you started playing with people like Dave Liebman and Richie Byrick and Jack DeJohnette. And I should mention that from my perspective, there's very few trombone players, especially at that time, that could hang with those guys musically, and you were certainly that. And, and even now, it's, it's to be able to stand and play with Richie Byrick and, and Dave Liebman is, requires a very... Uh, high level of musicianship in, in every in every possible way. Um, maybe you could talk about that time in your career, and also that's when I believe when your first record with Every Breath came out, right in that time frame, and what that was like for you, uh, kind of launching into that upper echelon of great jazz players. Well, I think uh, one decision I had made, you know, as a trombone player, we love big bands. You know, I mean, well, if you don't love it you're not going to really be a trombone player, especially in the day that we grew up. And so I aspired to play in big bands, and I loved it. But I realized, as far as a creative improvisational outlet, it wasn't going to be... I never looked on a big band as an outlet. Um, in fact, being a trombone player, you know, many times on gigs, you wouldn't even get a solo because of the, the nature. I call, you know, trombone players are like the linemen of the big band, you know? Um, and linemen are really respected, but they don't score a lot of points, you know, in games. It's always the quarterback and, you know, the halfbacks and the, you know, the wide receivers. So, and I accepted that there. So I always felt like I, for a creative outlet, I needed to do my own projects. And so it, it's interesting that I, from, and I think it's from my Punahou years in Hawaii, I had started um, composing, and so I had written um, songs and jazz tunes and stuff. And I met uh, Ron McClure uh, playing with uh, Jimmy Madison's band um, at the Blue Note, and started playing with uh, Adam Nussbaum. And then Ron was like, "Well, we got a trio with Richie Byrack. Why don't we start? Let's do something with Richie." And I wanted to do an al my first album, and so I had a loft in lower in uh, Chelsea on uh, 17th and between 6th and 7th Avenue, and we could rehearse there. And so we started rehearsing, and we recorded that album. And of course, the guy for me was Jim Snydero, who was my best friend. So it was Jim Snydero and Richie Byrick and Ron and Adam. 
And then we just started doing, doing gigs. You know, we started, I looked around and we started playing in the village. Um, I uh, got a national endowment grant that helped fund a second quartet record. And then Richie and I did a duo CD. These were all, you know, the first three projects I did. And then um, Randy Brecker, I met Randy and became a great friend. And then we did a quintet with Randy. And I just found some tapes with Michael and that exact band. Actually, some amazing. I just sent them to Randy of uh, Michael and I with Richie, Ron, and Adam. And that, you know, I was blessed in my life that sort of my guy, you know, the group that we were working with around the village and, you know, was, uh, was this incredible group. Mm. And Richie Byrek is a great friend. Mm -hmm. And uh, we just started hanging out all the time. And then it turned out that, um, of course, Dave Liebman and Richie Byrek are great friends. And so then Richie would say, hey, Lee, man, you should, you know, call Conrad. And then that was when uh, Lieb did an album. Um, and Bob Mincer and I and Lieb and uh, Jim McNeely and uh, Rufus Reed and Adam Nussbaum. And we toured Europe and stuff. And it, it you know, uh, Lieb told me something like, you know, you should always record with the guys you're playing gigs with. You know, he, Lieb always felt and he had this idea that it wasn't always the best idea to sort of like, let's say wherever you're living, maybe in Chicago or, you know, Des Moines, Iowa. You know, if those are the guys you're working with, you should record with them because you have the best rapport. Mm -hmm. Well, the reason everyone wants to move to New York is because of the rhythm section players that we've had the great fortune to play with. So it just happened that the guys I was working with and playing in the loft were guys like, you know, Richie and, and Ron and Adam and, and then Lieb. And, uh, you know, one thing kind of led to the other. You know, playing with Randy, um, I started, uh, you know, doing some recording and then we, a uh, great tenor sax player from Europe, his name is Aero, Aero Corbestoinen, did an album and he got, uh, uh, he had Ron McClure and Jack DeJunet and they were buddies from Charles Lloyd's you know, days, and uh, with those because they they had a trio with Keith Jarrett, Ron McClure, and and uh, and Jack mm -hmm. DeJunet, and with Charles Lloyd, that was the group. And so then I met Jack. It was pretty intimidating playing with Jack the very first time. Although I'll, I'll tell you a story about that. That we so we did a record, and Sko was playing guitar, and Randy and Dave Kikoski and I, and uh, Jack and and uh, Ron McClure. And so Arrow wrote this piece of his, and he said, I want you and Jack to play duo, because I want to hear how that sounds. And I had never met Jack, or we didn't, you know. And so uh, we play, and it's just Jack, you know, throwing down, and so I'm trying to hold my own against Jack, and, or with Jack, you know, and so we get done, and we're in the booth. And so Jack's like, yeah, kid, who have you played with? And I don't know why I said it, but I go, Buddy Rich. And Jack goes, yeah, man, you got any buddy stories, you know? And immediately, we, you know, it was just funny. I'm like, yeah, I got some buddy stories, you know? And he was like, yeah, man, you know? And so we've, we've been friends and, uh, you know, played on different projects. And, and Richie and Jack and I did a trio record um, later. And uh, we played on Joe Henderson's band together. Mm -hmm. And so, but one of those things is, it is an adrenaline rush 
the night before you're going to record with Jack DeJunette. You might be, you know, I'll be staring at the ceiling. But the comfort zone, once again, is having done it sort of organically through the years. You know, you having been a sideman with Jack, you know, on different projects. And I, there's sort of a camaraderie, you know, like playing with Joe Henderson's band, for example, with Jack. Um, you, you're just eating dinner and hanging out. and You've had those experiences, you know. And so then, you know, it, it wasn't such a stretch. And actually, that trio record, uh, Richie and I had done this duo record, and we were sort of saying, like, man, what could we do that would, like, really make this? And I was like, well, maybe we could just have drums, you know. And, and, he, and then he goes, yeah, well, we'll just call Jack. And I said, you think he'll do it? And he goes, sure. So I called Jack, and Jack was like, sure, when is it? Let's, let's do it, you know? And, it, and it, was, it was a great feeling, you know? I mean, it's, it's daunting, but uh, that was, it was cool, you know? And I've, I've had a lot of nice times and just, you know, learned a ton of musical things from Jack DeJunette. Yeah, well, you've certainly uh, you've deserved all those opportunities, and you've and you've brought a lot to the trombone. I mean, you're the only guy that I could think of who's who's vaulted the instrument up into that level. And you know, you brought up a very important name, and then probably the name I wanted to ask you about most in this interview. But um, Joe Henderson and your association with him, and I'd like you to maybe just touch on your memories of that. And I know that even I, the, I had heard through the grapevine that that Joe was just absolutely insistent on you being the guy and that the label was talking about other people who might be involved in the Joe just said no I gotta have Conrad um, and I thought the combination of the two of you was a match made in heaven but maybe you could talk about about that association with Joe Henderson well in the early 90s Joe was the man you know yeah. triple downbeat triple Grammy you know and I, I was really happy because I wore out copies of, you know, Inner Urge and The Real McCoy with Passion Dance, you know, and, and uh, Red Clay. It seemed like, you know, Cape Verdean Blues. It seemed like all my favorite records. Joe Henderson was, was one, you know, not all my favorite records, obviously, but the amazing thing about Joe was in the era of John Coltrane and Wayne Shorter, Joe had his own unique personality that, was totally, you know, not overshadowed. I mean, he just had his own musical voice. Um, and, and yet, it didn't seem like he got his, you know, financially or from the music business perspective, Joe wasn't doing as well as he would have liked in the 60s and mm -hmm. in early 70s. I mean, he was recording and he was a musician's musician. But then in the late 80s and early 90s, Joe became a superstar. And... Uh, it happened that, you know, Bob Belden, a great friend of mine, was um, sort of a musical advisor to, um, they were trying to complete the Joe Henderson Big Band CD. And so I got hired to play first trombone on the Joe Henderson Big Band album. And you talk about uh, daunting, was that Slide Hampton was the arranger on a lot of it. And, you know, having to play first trombone with Slide conducting in that situation and you know uh, it's sort, sort of something you dream about I think that record was uh, with uh, Chris McBride was playing bass and Chick Corea is playing piano and uh, uh, Al Foster Nicholas Payton was on there you know and it, it was a you know it's a, a dream come true because it was like Fattis and 
you know, Earl Gardner and uh, sure. a lot. Of, I mean, it was, it was an amazing record. Uh, and so we recorded it and uh, it won a Grammy, you know, because everything, I mean, Joe Hen had the Midas touch in those days. So we did a week at the Blue Note and uh, I guess it's politically correct to tell this. You can edit it out or not. <laughs> but what happened was we, we played and we did the first set at the Blue Note and the record label, because Joe was such a big star, they said, well, just Joe will play all the solos. So it was like Joe playing a solo, then the big band plays, then Joe playing a solo, then the big band plays. And it just turned out from a sort of an entertainment setting or just from a musical setting, it, it wasn't what they were looking for really. Like they needed some other people. So mm -hmm. then they said, well, I think Rini Rosas was playing piano. They said, well, Rini can play a piano solo and why don't we have Conrad play a, a trombone solo and like Mike Mossman play a trumpet solo and uh, uh, you know a couple of sax alto solo and uh, then I played you know and then uh, I went up and I, I met you know with Joe and uh, I had done an album called The Latin Side of Coltrane I gave it to Joe and I guess Joe must have liked it or something because then I got a call and uh, Edith King and Joe's manager said, Joe wants you in the band. And uh, it's a true story that she mentioned there was some other trombone players she had tried to sell Joe on, but Joe was like, no, I, I want Conrad. So, I mean, that was very, you know, it's a gratifying thing. Sure. And then we went in the studio and we recorded uh, Porgy and Bess, Joe's record. And that was with uh, Joe Henderson, with uh, Jack DeJunette, Dave Holland, John Schofield, and Tommy Flanagan, and Stefan Harris, and myself. And then we went on the road, you know? And uh, I was blessed that, you know, a, a lot of the times, uh, uh, the, the set group at that time was with Al Foster and George Morass. And then, we got Randy Brecker, and so Joe and Randy and I went out with, you know, George and Al, and uh, started touring around. And uh, that's a dream come true for a trombone player. Oh my you know, God. it's kind of daunting. I, I remember speaking. We were doing some gigs in Europe, and Sco was on. You know, John Schofield was on the gig, and I'm like, and I, you know, I'm saying like, you know, Joe plays a solo. Then you play a solo. Then like Tommy Flanagan, you know, then it's like my turn. <laughs> and and Sco told me, well, you know, look at it this way. You know, Joe Henderson is like Joe Henderson. He can hire anybody he wants, obviously. And he goes, it's obvious he just, you know, he wants to hear you play, so just be yourself. And I, you know, Sco was being really nice. And uh, and Joe was always real nice to me. So, so that was a dream come true. So... Uh, yeah, great you know, stories. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I think it's it's important to note too. I mean, you're very humble about it, but you, very few people could have uh, stepped into that role, and you elevated the trombone with your your talents, and and that combination of that is just uh, is is fantastic. Um, I want to talk. I want to get into more specifically about you mentioned the Latin side of John Coltrane. I want to talk about that a little bit, but maybe as a lead into that, we could talk about an, your affiliation with Eddie Palmieri, which has gone now for 
for the past three decades, I guess, uh, or maybe longer. But um, I know you've yeah. worked with them in varying capacities. Maybe you could talk about your relationship with Eddie and just how, how your role with him musically and personally has evolved over the years. I met Eddie through Victor Paz. And anybody who's on a brass website needs to know about Victor Paz as the greatest first trumpet player in you know, Afro-Cuban salsa and Afro-Cuban, Afro-Caribbean jazz. He's living in Panama now, but I mean, amazing player. And I had started <clears throat> playing with Mario Bassa. And you know, Mario Bassa is a great innovator and sort of godfather of um, Afro-Cuban music and blood brother with Dizzy Gillespie. And so I was playing with um, Mario's band and Victor was playing lead. And uh, we were actually at one of these Cuban-Chinese places over on, uh, over by the Winter Garden Theater. I think it was Asia Numero Dos. And in comes Eddie Palmieri. And so Victor introduces me. And so, you know, we're sitting there having a beer. And uh, so, and Victor told Eddie as he walked out, he says, well, you should call Conrad to play in your band. And uh, I didn't know this, but um, Eddie later told me Victor never recommends anybody. He says it was such a shock to him. He's like, you know, Victor, and I love Victor. He's like another godfather to me. But um, so he had introduced me to Eddie, and then Eddie called me, and we started. Uh, I started playing in Eddie's band. I went to Europe with his salsa orchestra with all the guys from Puerto Rico, Juancito Torres and Charlie Sepulveda, Victor Candelario in the, in the section, but then people like Giovanni Hidalgo, you know, the greatest percussion, you know, great conga players, Anthony Carillo on bongo. It, it was sort of an all-star, all-star group. I was the only guy who didn't speak Spanish at the time. I learned later how to speak Spanish just so they wouldn't talk about me, you know. <laughs> but uh, started playing with Eddie, and we just became really great friends. And then, you know, also Brian Lynch, was working, I think Brian at that particular time had gone out with Horace Silver. Mm. So then when Brian came back, um, we were working together. Um, we did a demo with, with Paul Simon because Paul was writing his, uh, that Cape Man, Cape Man, right. Cape Man yeah. show. Yeah. And he was looking for ideas, you know, and, and so we recorded with Paul Simon. And uh, then Eddie decided to start an Afro-Cuban or Afro-Caribbean jazz octet. And it was with Brian Lynch and Donald Harrison and myself. And the guy, you know, rhythm section. And so we just started working and, you know, I mean, working a lot too. I mean, Eddie was working a lot and, you know, Eddie has the Midas touch, you know, he's I think 12 time Grammy winner. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we became so close that he's also the godfather of my oldest son. So we're in, Technical terms, he's my compai. We're compai. <laughs> uh, you know, I call myself, you know, compai tercero. You know, there's compai segundo. I'm compai tercero. <laughs> but we're, so we're compais. And, you know, we've had this musical relationship. I think the thing with Eddie, of all the people in Afro-Cuban and Afro-Caribbean jazz, is that he loves to take chances. Um, he loves the trombone because Barry Rogers who should be a name that everyone's familiar with. We should do a tribute to Barry Rogers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Barry Rogers is one of the great, and one of the few innovators, um, non, uh, 
Hispanic innovators in uh, Afro-Caribbean music. Great, the greatest trombone player probably in the history of salsa. I think the highest compliment that I get is when people come and say, "There's a, you know, you remind me of Barry," or they say, "Like, yeah, you know, do you know Barry Rogers?" And you know, it's a huge compliment that they would associate because Barry knew so much about the music. And so Eddie loved the trombone. And for those who don't know, La Perfecta was a two trombone conjunto. And so they, that was, you know, the band that they had. And that was Eddie's, where Eddie became famous. And so the trombone always had a huge role and has a huge role in salsa, you know, for various reasons. But, um, and so, you know, starting with Eddie was, was a great thing. But Eddie, you know, also Barry Rogers took Eddie to see Thelonious Monk, took um, Eddie to see John Coltrane's group. And, you know, Eddie's a huge fan of McCoy Tyner and Thelonious Monk. And so Eddie's one of the few people that was able to fuse that and integrate that into his music. And, you know, a lot of band leaders don't want you to take chances. Eddie prefers it. He'll get mad at you if you're not taking chances. So the beauty of that was, you know, when, when we got in the band, Brian and, and Donald and I, well, we're doing everything but the kitchen sink. If you let us, we'll do, we'll do it all. And then all of a sudden, Eddie's in clave, comping, you know, like McCoy, you know, fourth voicings and, and all kinds of like really cool reharms and stuff. And so we're able to fuse that. And that was how we started um, the idea for the Latin side of Coltrane. That, you know, a lot of times we would be playing a riff, like a, like a blues, you know, like a C. He, Eddie has a, a C blues, that, and Blue Train just fit perfectly. We do it as a background. And then he has another piece called a Sukar, and we would just, like, as a background, we would play impressions over the top. And then, uh, once again, a guy who's been very influential in my life is Bob Belden. Bob Belden and I were talking. And I was telling him, man, there, you know, there's, he goes, what do you got going? And I said, well, there's, you know, some ideas. And um, I think Bob had been at the gig and he goes, man, what about, let's do Coltrane, you know? And we're like, yeah, man, we could do a whole album of Coltrane, sort of like what we do when we improvise over Eddie's band. And then Brian was my partner in crime, you know, and so we just started talking about it and we came up with a bunch of ideas and it happened that Bob, um, was uh, working with uh, a label called Profile uh, Records. And so, and it was actually, Profile was the mother company, and I think it was Astor Place was the jazz um, subsidiary. Mm -hmm. Profile, because Profile had like uh, Run DMC and all these oh, okay. hip hop guys. They, mm -hmm. This guy named Steve Plotnicki was a um, hip hop producer, but he loved jazz, like Panama Francis and like all this stuff. So we recorded Latin Side of Coltrane. And I was, you know, we had, a, for those days, a pretty nice budget. I got Eddie Palmieri on there, Danilo Perez, um, Richie Byrack, mm. and uh, Ed Simon. I had four of my favorite piano players. And then, you know, Brian, Ronnie Cuber, and uh, a lot of, you know, and then people like Milton Cardona and, you know, great percussionists, Richie Flores, Jose Clausel, along with uh, John Benitez. So we were, you know, and these were guys who we worked with with Eddie. And one thing, 
came after another, and that's the, the genesis of the Latin side. Mm -hmm. And then we've been real fortunate. Um, I've had a relationship with the Blue Note in New York City, and they have a subsidiary which is Half Note Records. Um, Jeff Levinson, the vice president there, and we've gone on to do. Um, and usually, what we do is we'll look, we did um, the Latin side of Miles, which is kind of blue, and that's with Paquito de Rivera, who's another you know, great friend and colleague, um, and Dave Valentine on there. And then we had Latin side of Wayne Shorter with, with Eddie, Latin side of Herbie with Hancock with uh, Randy Brecker. And then we just did the Latin side of Joe Henderson with Joe Lovano. And a couple weeks ago we recorded the Latin side of Horace Silver with Michelle Camilo. And, you know, the projects, I'm, I'm a student of Afro-Cuban music. Um, you know, when I ran off from North Texas to go out with Clark Terry, I and not didn't finish my degree to my parents' horror. <laughs> Later, I um, got a degree in Afro-Cuban culture, Afro-Cuban ethnomusicology, and uh, so I've always been fascinated by that. But the other thing is to be able to take Joe Henderson's music make a tribute, especially with someone like Joe Lovano, who's another great friend. Mm -hmm. it's, it's close to home for me. Um, with Horace Silver, I was really fortunate that um, 10 years ago, Horace called me to play in his, his band, and we did a week at the Blue Note. And nobody knew at that time that that was going to be the last week that he was ever going to perform. And um, the Ben Susan family, who owns the Blue Note, loves Horace Silver. I mean, we all love Horace Silver. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, sad. At, we're all sad about Horace passing a few months ago. So it, but it means a lot to be able to, you know, perform their, his music and, and to have a tribute to honor him. Mm -hmm. and, and to do something fresh. You know, we're trying. I don't know if, you know, I mean, to put a, a different flavor Although with, with Horace's music, and I think with Joe Henderson, they have such an Afro world point of view that it's easy, you know, I mean, you can quote unquote Latinize anything, right? but there's, some things are easier than, I mean, some things are just so natural. I mean, with Horace, like Cape Verdean blues and, you know, I mean, it's, it's just right in the wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. And uh, same with Joe Hen, you know, yeah. those, we did like Afrocentric and, I mean, Recorded Me and those tunes. You know, putting a slightly different Afro-Caribbean take on it, but um, it does seem like it's a really natural fit, and I think uh, it kind of lends itself to your playing. And I was you just answered my questions perfectly because I wanted to touch on all of those, all of you, uh, your recent solo recordings. But I think one of the things that I admire about your playing and your career and the whole way you do—it's very organic. Like you just, it kind of like leads into. Uh, what it should be musically, and we could, you know, you just kind of touched on exactly how your solo career, how you think of things, how it, you could see the thread musically, who's tied through it, you know, whether it be, you know, your association with Joe Henderson or Joe Lovano or you know Brian Lynch and you know all the, the mm -hmm. many people that you've been associated with, and I think that's that's a uh, a great lesson. And for those of you who don't have those uh, recordings of Conrad's, definitely check them out. Some amazing playing and amazing writing on your part too, arranging. Well, and, and they're all over YouTube, so yeah, <laughs> get them for free. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I want to ask you, this is one thing, and I don't mean to be controversial about this, so answer this in any way you like, but one of the things I've always um, 
been not, disappointed is the wrong word, but I've, I've observed, let's put it that way, in, in the jazz press, is that it always felt like there was kind of only room for one trombone player to really get enough attention to kind of launch up to another level. There's, of course, part of it, you touched on that earlier, like, you know, you harken back to the Trummy Young thing. It's like, yeah, most groups are not led by a trombone player. In fact, you know, we can probably name it on one hand. But, but one of the things that I felt, I mean, you're internationally renowned and, um, and followed by everyone, and everybody knows who you are, and there's so many fans worldwide. But I've always felt like you should have gotten more attention, to be honest with you, in the, in the, in the jazz press world. And, and you know, you've, of course you've gotten a good deal in all of it well-deserved, but I've always, it's always been kind of interesting to me that the trombone never really gets a much, you know, there's always kind of room for one guy, and that one guy kind of is there for a while, and then, then maybe another guy. But it's unlike like the saxophones, particularly tenor players, but, and trumpet as well, they have a little bit more, just a little bit more flow, I guess, in terms of the, in the actual press and, and the visibility that they get. I was just curious if you had any... Yeah, I think there's a few that. few ways to look at it, and I guess the old joke is, you know, the trombone players are the Rodney Dangerfields of jazz, <laughs> right? You know, we get we get no respect. But uh, the way I've looked at things, and I try to apply this to my teaching as well, is that in life there's there's two types of goals: there's internal goals and external goals. Um, so that. I've tried to focus, I mean, look, we have to focus on external goals in the sense, you know, that we're uh, the breadwinners for our family. We have children, you know, those of us that have families and you have to provide for your family, you have to provide a life, and so it's a business. We know it's a business. But the internal aspects of it are, you know, waking up every day and trying to be a better musician than you were yesterday, trying to look for different ways of expression, trying to think outside the box. You know, I think it's Jim Snydero is the one who said that, you know, I'm really, I'm not really a trombone player, I'm just a frustrated saxophone player in a <laughs> trombone player's body. And, but, you know, I think I always, I mean, I've had this duality that I love the trombone. I do love the trombone. I think it was probably fate and, you know, coming up and being around trummy and, Les and I are in Hawaii, and then um, knowing Carl Fontana and playing gigs, you know, mm -hmm. with Carl. And I mean, Frank Rosalina was a hero. I heard Frank live, Slide Hampton playing in Slide's band. Um, those guys are my heroes, you know. Uh, and so I admire what they do. And there's a technology I think that was was developed. I mean, JJ, one of my idols of my life, right? I mean, JJ integrated. Charlie Parker's music, and I think Slide Hampton was the first one to really integrate the musical language of John Coltrane. You know, and be able to, like, if you heard and hear Slide Hampton playing Moments Notice, I mean, you'd believe it if you didn't know that he wrote the tune. I mean, mm -hmm. he owns that music. So, um, but there is that duality, and then, although I gravitated to listening to John Coltrane and Sonny Rollins and Joe Henderson, and I think <clears throat> I probably always wanted maybe secretly, to play the trombone the way Joe Henderson played the saxophone, for example. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's kind of an impossible task, but it's, it's worth thinking about. Well, the same thing, the duality for me of internal goals versus external goals. I always feel like if I take care of business in keeping my nose to the grindstone, if, if you 
continue to compose, if you continue to practice and work on um, new concepts, then you know the internal takes care of itself, and your happiness, or at least I believe, happiness comes from the, the wholeness of those internal goals. The external goals work for themselves. You know, in other words, I can't control what people are, and, and I've been blessed in my life because, you know, what, when you're a kid, you know, if, you, if they, someone told you, well, you can, every year or 18 months or so, you can do a new album, and you begin to be able to do it to your 55, and I'm 55 now, and there's more projects, and you can tour the world playing Joe Henderson's music and John Coltrane's music and play your own music, and maybe on the side, you could do a trio record with Jack DeJanet and Richie Byrack. It's So in other words, I let external goals take care of themselves. I mean, the thing that concerns me, and I'll tell you, a guy who um, I respect and I'm happy for, and I think is changing the scene a little bit, is Troy, Troy Andrews. Um, I think, you know, we just were hanging out at the Saratoga Jazz Festival, and he's a super, I can call him a kid because I'm probably twice his age, super kid. And it's just, you know, I think maybe the public's perception of the trombone gets a boost, you know, from, from uh, a, an artist mm -hmm. like Trombone Shorty. Um, I noticed, you know, I'm not a huge uh, follower of downbeat poles and stuff like that, but just, you know, more people are interested in the trombone. Mm -hmm. um, and. And I guess it's all who you talk to. I mean, I know what you're saying, but once again, it's also, I think, um, you know, you know, my dad always told me no one twisted my arm to play the trombone. You know, I'd done it of my own volition. And I think, for example, uh, as I said before, we're the, we're the linemen of, of the team. We're the linemen of the band. So you accept your role as a trombone player. And, you know, I mean, I agree in some ways that you know, like a trombone section. If a trombone section is great, everyone takes it for granted. If, if there's some flies in the ointment there, then, you know, what's wrong? Mm -hmm. You know, and, but, but we, we accept who we are, you know? And I mean, the one thing I know for the future, because I teach, we might touch on this, you know, is that it would not surprise me if in the next hundred years, a future John Coltrane is a trombone player. You know, the, what, it, because things skip generations. Like, if we go back and we went 60 years back in time, maybe 70 years, the most famous musicians on the planet were Tommy Dorsey and Glenn Miller. Mm -hmm. the, you know what I mean? Yeah. So who's to say in 50 years from now that we might have somebody like another Tommy Dorsey or Glenn Miller come onto the scene and who also is equipped with 21st century technology on the trombone that's playing Joe Henderson and Coltrane lines and stuff and then you know whatever they're doing so I'm optimistic mm -hmm. you know and I'm, because look you know I'm so proud of you and I'm this is not the uh, like let's blow smoke in each other's <laughs> direction but but the point being you know you're raising the the level and the awareness of brass playing for brass players and you know it's up to the next generation and we're sitting around with the next generation here to take it, take the ball and run with it. Mm. So, I, so I feel optimistic, and I, although I understand completely how people feel, 
Um, but it's also a responsibility of, of the trombone players to, to, uh, to stay strong. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Richie Byrek told me a story of, of his teacher. And his teacher was a guy named Maestro Palmieri, no relation. Uh, and he said that uh, Maestro Palmieri felt that it was the job of the master teacher to discourage those who could be discouraged because it's a really difficult life. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't agree with that, personally. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. not my personal way. But in other words, if, someone, if there's young trombone players and trumpet players listening to this, you know, if, if there's some part of you that could be discouraged by external forces, mm -hmm. maybe you need to think, dig deep and think about that and reflect on that. Because, you know, um, what, what we achieve internally can, can be worth so much more. And the his, history is full also of artists who were not acknowledged in their time. Mm -hmm. You know, Van Gogh comes, that's the classic cliche, sure. right? Van Gogh never sold a painting. Now, you know, I mean, you got to be a billionaire to buy a Van Gogh. And so, well, was his art, he might not even care. Mm -hmm. if, I mean, who knows? Van Gogh might even be pissed off that his, you know, he'd say well, you should value my art for what it is, not for how much it's worth. Because now it's a trophy, right? And so we, it depends on how we look at art. But I, I appreciate the, the sentiment, and we just have to stay tough. That's great advice, Conrad, and thank you. I think uh, the way you describe the internal and external goals is a really, uh, it's helpful to me just hearing it. And I can imagine for, uh, for all of us trying to improve ourselves on a daily basis, it's a great, really great way to look at it. Um, I'd kind of like to shift gears right now and talk. Uh, we're here at Rutgers University. Uh, a great program that you've helped develop uh, substantially over the last uh, decade or so. Uh, of course, your uh, role as a teacher of jazz trombone, uh, improvisation, composition, and arranging, but now you're also the chair of the Jazz Studies program, which I know brings on a whole other level of responsibility and, 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 uh, and what you bring to your students. So um, maybe you could talk about that. And I also uh, I wanted to touch on your association with the Mingus Band. That's an important one, but it's, this is kind of a nice... Uh, parlay into that because I know that uh, Sue Mingus has donated some um, funds to the school and you guys have an association so it's kind of a wide a wide question but maybe you could just talk a little bit about what it's like being here at Rutgers and your program and where you're headed with things and all of that. Sure you know one of the beauties of Rutgers is that we're situated right between New York City and Philadelphia pretty much right in the middle it's about well it's maybe 45 minutes to the city and an hour to Philadelphia from where we are which puts us in the center of, you know, the jazz, you know, mecca, mm -hmm. kind of. It's, mm -hmm. And it's the school, um, Rutgers University, Mason Grove School of the Arts, um, has a storied history of jazz studies, you know, with um, professors like Larry Ridley, started the jazz program, or was one of the founders, um, and Kenny Barron was here, um, uh, Professor William Fielder, who's one of the great brass gurus of all time, you mm -hmm. know, Prof Fielder. Uh, in fact, I have Prof Fielder's office. It's sort of like, you know, an incredible uh, uh, mantle, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. to, to, to be. And, and Prof was the director of jazz studies, the chair of jazz studies also. Uh, so it's a, there's a storied history with all kinds of uh, alums too, you know. Uh, People like Terrence Blanchard and Terrell Stafford 
and uh, Frank Lacey and Ralph Bowen and Kenny Davis, some of the mm. our professors here. But and if you research it, there's a, a lot of Rutgers grads, My, uh, Mike Mossman, mm. a, lot of a lot of great brass players. Wow, that's interesting. I didn't know there so many great players. Um, Prof Fielder was was one of the great gurus and probably one of the um, you know, we talk about someone not getting fame. I mean, he was famous. I think, you know, people like Wynton Marsalis will tell you. I mean, when, when Prof Fielder passed six years ago, we ha every year we have a memorial concert, and it was like a who's who of brass playing. You know, Wynton came, and, and uh, Sean Jones, and mm. Terrell Stafford, and uh, John Faddis, and Frank Lacey. So so there is a quite a history. Um, we have a, a really um, interesting program. I think 60 jazz majors were tied into the New York C City scene. Uh, we have the Mingus Project now, which Sue Mingus has uh, uh, funded. And it, it's a program where we uh, bring 10 uh, members every year, and in, in one, one at a time they come for a master class uh, 10 times a year five times each semester, and we have a Mingus Ensemble now that performs. And it's very close to my heart because I've been playing with the Mingus Big Band for over 20 years mm -hmm. now. And uh, it's really exciting. You know, we've had all kinds of, we've had people like Seamus Blake and Alex Sipiagin, Frank Lacey, Earl McIntyre, uh, Philip Harper for the Brass Players. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's a lot of, it's intense, a lot of fun. We, we talk about all aspects of Mingus's music from the harmonic compositional aspects to how to improvise on his tunes to the sort of socio-political views and the climate of his day and age that fits our day and age. Because mm -hmm. there's really no difference between what was going on in the South in Arkansas in the 50s and what's going on in Ferguson, Missouri today. It's amazingly, yeah. sadly yeah. the same. I mean, it's yeah. eerie, you know, but, but Mingus was sort of a, a Nostradamus mm -hmm. of jazz in that way, in like really political message. Um, and so we've been doing that. And, you know, uh, so the Mingus Project is huge. We also have Eddie Palmieri as a visiting professor and Fred Hirsch. Which is great. So Eddie comes uh, once a month and teaches um, composition and arranging and a master class. And we have an Afro-Caribbean uh, ensemble that Bill O'Connell leads. Uh, and, you know, there's all kinds of interaction. You know, kids are learning uh, the ins and outs of Afro-Cuban music and Afro-Caribbean music. I've told our students... Um, being in class with Eddie Palmieri learning Afro-Caribbean music would be like having Charlie Parker in the class learning bebop. Mm -hmm. It's the same. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't, you can't go any closer to the source. Right. And it's really gratifying to, to watch Eddie uh, teaching the piano players. I mean, wh where better are you going to learn how to play Montunos than from Eddie Palmieri? Absolutely. Uh, and so we have the uh, ability. Eddie is... Uh, going to be one of our guest soloists this year. Um, we also had, you know, Tane uh, came in as a clinician last year, and Tane's coming back as a guest artist. I'm uh, very fortunate that I'm I'm in the uh, 
Watts family reunion band. So it, so Tane uh, and his wife Laura um, are very gracious, and uh, so there's a lot of lot going on. You know, yeah. we we um, we try to run the gamut of you know jazz history. Um, our graduate students study with Dr. Lewis Porter up in Newark, and we have the access to the world's greatest jazz archives, which is the uh, Jazz Institute in Newark, the Rutgers Jazz Institute. And uh, we compose, we arrange, we, we work on improv. Uh, it's, and then we have relationships with the Blue Note students. We perform at the Blue Note with students and the faculty. And it, you know, it's a dream come true for me you know, our faculty ensemble includes, you know, Victor Lewis on drums, Kenny Davis, Bill O'Connell, Vic Juris, um, Robbie Amin has joined the faculty. So uh, percussion students who want to study Afro-Cuban music and, and that Afro-Caribbean. Um, we've had Stefan Harris here teaching uh, mallets to the drummers. Mm. So it's exciting. Yeah. You know, it's real exciting. Um, I'd agree with you, um, being a chair brings a different skill set, you know, it's different than, you know, being a trombone player, but uh, I've, I've enjoyed it, and I've, I've felt the responsibility and, you know, the, my role models and mentors who came before me, you know, like Larry Ridley and Prof Fielder and Kenny Barron, you know, it's uh, John Stubblefield taught here, um, all, it, you know, Mike Mossman was here, it's, like, it's a, I think, Rutgers is sort of a, a, not a diamond in the rough, but I think we've been under the radar. Mm -hmm. And uh, so being a state university and having the access, we're also in the Big Ten. So interestingly, um, the Big Ten, we share music libraries with every Big Ten school. So Indiana, Michigan, we all have oh, this, wow. it's, it's uh, a, um, and there's a term, it's a consortium of, of the Big Ten schools, so it really is a great resource educationally, and we're just kind of at the tip of the iceberg because this is our first year in the Big Ten, but it's it's real exciting. Yeah, that's great stuff. Well, I think I think you're uh, no longer under the radar. I think you've built a great program here, and, and I, I I can't recommend it highly enough. I was doing master class. I can't remember what it was, and, and he's one of your students now, but a young man, a trombone player, came up to me, and he said to I said, yeah, you sound really good. Where are you, where are you going to school? He goes, oh, I'm, I'm going to Rutgers. I said, you can stay with Conrad? He says, yeah, I hope so. And I said, you cannot be in better hands. So, uh, and, I, and I happened to run into him a year later, and I said, it's going great for you, right? He's like, it's the best. It's the best. <laughs> well, so it's, it's, nice it's, it's you're doing great stuff uh, here and uh, continued success with it. Um, Conrad, as we wind down, and you've, you've given us so much information today that's just been great. I mean, I got a lot out of it just on how to approach life and music and all those things. But I like to kind of always end up our interviews with just asking a great artist like yourself if there are young musicians out there and I know you're influencing them on a daily basis um, uh, personally but if you could just kind of give a message you know a couple of things that come to your mind as what you would advise to young people thinking about going into music who have a passion for it who think of maybe oh, I could be the next Conrad Herwig what, what, uh, what might that be? Well you know I've been asked that question a few times before and this may seem a little counterintuitive because um, I think in music, you know, we start as young players and we spend a lot of time on our own practicing and it 
becomes, and, and I don't know of another way to say it, but sort of a me world. It's about ourselves. We're, and uh, rightly so, because, you know, it's, there's not a lot of instant gratification in playing a brass instrument. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of um, consistent commitment, right? Um, but the advice I would give to, to any young musician is, you know, learn how to make other people sound good. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of young players, one of the things, and I've, we've seen them come and go, you know, for 30 years, is that, it, you know, it's about how I sound, my solo, right? But you've been very successful in your life learning how to make other people sound great. Like, you've learned how to make the Rolling Stones sound great, how to make, <laughs> no, Frank Sinatra sound great. In other words, that's the job of a musician, right, is basically right. making other people sound good. And then in the moment, then when you have your platform, then you take your solo, and if, if you can do that too, you know, then you're, you're successful. In other words, um, any, like, you know, a young rhythm section player, that, I mean, I think it's more obvious for rhythm section players know that they're in an accompaniment role there, a mm-hmm. drummer or a bass player, whoever they're accompanying. But even for brass players, you know, if you're, if you're thinking in, in a sense, like I'll give you an example as a jazz musician, if you can make a rhythm section sound great, that skill will continually, you know, people won't really understand, well, why is it that that person was hired? Like, why, you know, why does, why does she always get the gig? Mm-hmm. Well, because whenever she's playing, those around her are at a higher level. And, you know, probably some role models in life, like a Michael Jordan. You know, when Michael Jordan was on the team, some of those guys around him were all-stars. Then they go to other teams, they never made the all-star team again, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and we know that with like a great conductor like a Lauren Mizell or who, you know, that then all of a sudden, whatever group they're conducting, the level is raised. So I think, you know, that would be my biggest advice. And, you know, um, I've had the blessing of performing in a lot of people's bands, you know. And I know that my, my highest goal always, you know, if, if you ask me, is like, you know, I want to make Clark Terry sound great. I want to make Eddie Palmieri sound great. I, you know, I want to make Joe Henderson sound great. That was my deepest desire. You know, it, it may appear differently if you're looking back at a video, or you know, but but honestly, you know, that I think that that's kind of goes hand in hand with that internal goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, a story I, I go around and do quartet gigs, you know, in, with rhythm sections. And I was actually um, in the Pacific Northwest doing, doing a gig with a quartet. And it was in a club that's been there. I think it's not there anymore, but it was there for years and years. And, uh, you know, it was the same crowd of people would come every night. They had beer mugs with their names etched on it. <laughs> and they had, like, bar stools with their name on it. They were sitting on their own name there. And a couple of old-timers came, and they, they told me, you know, we had finished a set, you know, a couple, like, you know, three set night, and they said, I've been coming out here f- for 30 years, and that's the best I ever heard that rhythm section sound in 30 years. Now, you know, 
it, it wasn't like they didn't come up to me and say, wow, that was a great trombone <laughs> set. They said, right. that's the best I ever heard that. And you know, that was one of the best compliments I ever received because wow. it made me feel like, yeah, you know, that's, so that quality that I'm talking about, you, it can be learned, mm -hmm. but you have to have sort of a sixth sense when you're playing. Because I think what happens is, you know, we're out there and we're in the moment and there's all this adrenaline flow. And so we play our solo and then, you know, it has what it has. But, but think about Miles Davis. Miles, every one of the musicians that were around him became superstars. Mm -hmm. He made every one of them and, and probably taught them how great they could be. Mm -hmm. I mean, not that Herbie and Chick and Keith Jarrett and, you know, Jack and Tony Williams and Ron Carter and Dave Holland weren't going to be among the greatest players, but they all learned how good they could sound and how great they could make other people sound. And that skill, to me, is sort of an intangible that doesn't get talked about a lot. Mm. Wow, that is some great advice. And I, and I think... Using the sports analogy is great, too. I mean, you think about the great players on any sport, but, you know, people talk about Magic Johnson or Larry Bird, and they revere them, and that's the first thing everybody says is it makes, them, makes everybody else around them better. So uh, a great thank you for that, Conrad, a great, uh, great way to approach playing music. So, Well, listen, Conrad, thank you so much for taking so much of your time today and the great advice and sharing all the, the amazing stories in your life and your career. And, uh, um, continued success with everything and most of all from a trombone perspective thanks for all the inspiration and motivation you've given all of us uh, myself at the top of that list it's always it's always just incredible to hear you play and uh, and i know everybody i know feels the same way so uh, thanks for all of that well i mean it's nice of you to say i'm just trying to keep up with you guys you know that <laughs> i think uh, we can check that off the to-do list for you <laughs> listen thanks uh, everybody for joining us today and uh, we will see you all next time on bone to pick